The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, thank you. Or maybe in Texan, shalom, y'all. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting better at that, I think. He's getting really good at that, yeah. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your history and uh, how you got to where you are, brother? Yeah, this weekend... Um, we heard a lot about choices, choices that people make in their lives, and how destructive sometimes choices can be, but sometimes they're very positive, very wonderful. And um, I really have to admit that the choices that my grandfather uh, made long time ago uh, had a wonderful effect on the rest of the family. He uh, was the first one in our family to accept Yeshua, to accept Christ into his heart, and um, ever since then, the, the entire family today, and I'm talking about more than 40 cousins, and their children, and everybody else, um, every single one of us is a follower of Yeshua. Um, and it's really a neat story as to how your grandfather came to faith in Christ. Would you share that with us? Yeah. Um, my grandfather was born in Bulgaria to a very, very wealthy uh, Jewish family. Um, they were not religious, but they were definitely conservative. And um, he was supposed to take on the family business. And so for that, he was sent over to Switzerland for boarding school. And uh, he was really fascinated, you know, just fascinated and just, you know, had this kind of a search to uh, discover whether or not there was more to life. Uh, and his sort of self-exploration, he, you know, came across a lot of uh, books written by the greatest minds, you know, philosophers, Greek philosophers, and others. When one day he came across uh, a very unique, a very special book, which he had never read before, and that was uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, now, just so that you'll understand, uh, most Jews... Um, have great fear, great concerns concerning the scriptures, concerning the New Testament. And uh, for him just to have opened that book, you know, to have read that uh, was quite remarkable by itself. But it's not where it ended, you know. It continued from there, and um, that ultimately led him to the Lord. He accepted Christ just by reading the book of Matthew. Amazing story, isn't it? You read the Gospels, the scriptures say God's word will not return void. It bore fruit, and now he's the fourth generation, or your kids are the fourth generation, uh, to follow from that commitment that his grandfather made to Jesus. So uh, what a remarkable story. Tell us a little bit about your family. Well, uh, I'm married, and I have two wonderful teenage uh, children, a son and a daughter. I hope they're still alive there in in Israel, (laughs) haven't killed each other. Uh, my wife is here with me. She's not here at the moment, but we, uh, we came here together. Uh, this is already my second time to the States. The last time was to uh, California. But, uh, you know, so many people, people told me that I didn't really get to see the real America, so I decided to come to Texas to see the real America this time. <laughs> and uh, this has been a wonderful time. Um, I live in my hometown, my home village, in fact, uh, a place just outside of Jerusalem, um, and the unique thing about that place is that it's the only place, and again, we're talking about a tiny little community, um, where every single one um, living 
there is a born-again Christian. Um, when you think about the population of Israel, it's about 8 million, um, 6 million Jews, 2 million Arabs, and only about 15,000 born-again believers in Israel. So only 15,000. He lives in a community, kind of like a gated community here, you might say, and uh, it's all Christians who decide to live together so they can have community as believers. And uh, your wife is not Israeli. Tell us that story. She's not. She's not an Israeli. She was born and raised in Finland. She's not Jewish. And we have a lot of jokes about um, Jewish women and Jewish wives, especially in Israel. They're considered very demanding, hysterical, you know, kind of stereotype. And... (laughs) The saying has it that when uh, a Jewish man dies, he goes straight to heaven because he's already been through hell here. <laughs> so I, I knew better. I, I married a Finnish wife. <laughs> and we have a great time laughing when we travel together. And uh, Eris has more jokes than anybody I've ever met in my life. Uh, in fact, why don't you tell him about the uh, Jewish guy who became a Catholic? That's a pretty good story. Do you want to hear that? There was an ultra-Orthodox Jew in uh, New York City, downtown New York City, and he was in a real hurry. He, uh, the Sabbath was about to begin, and um, he decided to take a shortcut through the Roman Catholic neighborhoods there. And as he's running by a church, he feels some water touch his skin and turns back, and he sees in the backyard of the church, he sees christening. And he turns to the priest, and he says, you know, I just felt some water touch me, you know, what does this mean? The priest says, oh, he touched you? You're a Roman Catholic now. He says, what are you talking about? You know, you can't be. Yeah, you know, there's nothing much I can do about that. That's special water. (laughs) So he runs back home, and he sees his wife, and he says, Rachel, Rachel, you got to hear this. And she looks at him and starts yelling in his face, where have you been? I've been waiting for you all day long. Nothing's ready. There's no hollis. There's no bread. There's no candles. There's a soup. I've been waiting. What are we going to eat? goes upstairs and he sees his daughter and he says, oh, Esther, Esther, you got to hear this. He says, Daddy, where have you been? I told you a million times, you know, my computer, you got to come, you got to fix it. You said now it's Shabbat. I won't be able to contact my friends. goes on and on. Then he walks over to his son's room all over again. So he says to himself, man, I've only been a Roman Catholic for uh, 10 minutes and already I can't stand those Jews. When uh, Eris finished high school in Israel, it's mandatory for you to go into the military, men and women. So uh, men served for three years, women for two years. Uh, Eris became a sniper in the Israeli army, is that correct? And uh, also trained snipers after that. So when we go to Israel, we feel very safe. God is with us and the sniper is <laughs> with us. So uh, we're in good shape. People have asked me, are we afraid when we go to Israel? And I tell them, I'm more afraid when I go to New Orleans to see my folks than I ever am in Israel. So. Um, Eris has been a delight. He has, uh, the thing that he does, you know, you can go to Israel and you can get any number of guides. There aren't that many guides who know Jesus, though. And so a guy like Eris takes the Old Testament scriptures and he applies it to the New, and you go to these locations, he also has insight. He's a student of the Word. And uh, so I've asked him to present to us this morning, it's a presentation he did for the men yesterday, uh, just some ideas of things he studied recently. So brother. Go ahead and share with us. I'll jump in at times, but he's going to do most of the sharing now. Now, one of the things that uh, I've always tried to do as a believer and also in my professional line of work as a guide 
was to put things in perspective, to show the right context. And you can't really understand much of the scripture, especially the Old Testament, not only, without really understanding the historical setting, uh, the cultural setting. We're talking about Jewish society. Um, and, of course, sometimes even the language, the Hebrew language, which is so different from, uh, from English. And one of the examples, one of the illustrations that uh, I'd like to present to you is Psalm 23. I'm pretty, pretty sure that uh, you're all familiar with that psalm. Um, and um, soon you'll see how you can actually read that psalm with a totally different understanding simply by understanding the Hebrew language. And if we can just move on to the next slide. Over here, you see the shepherd and the sheep and the goats. This is a very, very typical picture, I think, very typical scenery out in the Judean wilderness. And you see the pasture, the green pasture right there. This is where the good shepherd will bring his sheep and his goats. And all around, you also notice there are those fine lines all around. Those are the goat's trails that you see everywhere. And the whole idea is to bring the flock to the base of the hill, and then you basically circle that hill. You go round and round about until eventually you get to the top. This is, in fact, something that King David, who himself was a shepherd, you remember, as a young boy, um, expressed, and he actually compared his desire to follow the true shepherd, the Lord, uh, to the desire of a lamb to follow its master. And let's uh, look at the text here. These are just the first three verses of Psalm 23. And, you know, when you read this, you realize that this is the voice of a lamb. It's not the voice of the shepherd, right? These first uh, three lines uh, are actually David as a sheep or someone is being led, right? And so, in fact, we should read, we ought to be reading this, uh, these three verses as, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Quiet waters, spring water, right? Not destructive waters like flash floods. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And as you can see, I highlighted, uh, underlined that, um, that phrase, paths of righteousness. Unfortunately, the English uh, translation doesn't do justice to the Hebrew text. Remember, these lines were originally written in Hebrew. When in fact, the Hebrew text says circular paths of righteousness. Not just paths of righteousness, circular paths paths of righteousness. What was David thinking about? Remember, he was very familiar with life out in the desert as a shepherd. The goat's trails. Those are the circular paths that he's talking about. And again, the whole notion is that the spiritual walk is a journey that, you know, is basically a life journey. You begin at the bottom, at the base, right? And then you kind of work your way up, up, further up, again and again and again. It's a long, tiring journey. You don't a lot of times see or notice that you're actually going up, but sure enough, you'll be faithful enough to follow the footsteps and you don't see that far ahead either. 
the footsteps of your master, he will surely get you to the top. What would happen if uh, one of those goats tried to take a shortcut? Going straight up to the top. It would stumble. It's not until you're there that you realize how steep those hills really are. And this is, again, uh, 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 the entire idea is also that of obedience. Okay, You're basically obedient to follow your Lord. You don't see that far ahead. A lot of times you don't know what's around the corner. But sure enough, if you trust the Lord, he will bring you to the top. That was just one illustration as to how you can apply the context into text. The next thing that I'd like to talk about briefly is um, three important stations in Jesus' life and especially ministry. As we all remember, Jesus uh, was born in Bethlehem, um, and he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem because he was a descendant of the house of David, but in fact he spent most of his life in a small little village called Nazareth in Galilee. Now, we put this picture here just to show you how Nazareth would have looked, 2,000 years ago, it was actually in the valley down there. This is a wine vet right there. And really a beautiful picturesque scenery of lower Galilee. Um, But what most people don't really realize is the great symbolism and importance of the name Nazareth. It doesn't really mean much in in English or in other languages, but to a Hebrew ear, uh, it is a very, very significant name. And uh, I'd like to talk about the meaning of the name Nazareth. As you can see, I highlighted uh, part of the word in Hebrew. And so the Hebrew is on the right-hand side. Uh, Hebrew readers, of course, would uh, read that from right to left. And as you can see, the word Nazareth, Nazareth in Hebrew, derives from three letters right there. This is the root of the word, which means the offshoot or the branch, netzer. That's the Hebrew word for an offshoot or a branch. So in fact, the name Nazareth means the city or the town of the branch, the offshoot. Who was that branch who grew up there? Jesus. And we know that, of course. Soon I'm going to show you how you can really apply that to Old Testament prophecy. Right there in the center, you see the tree. This is a good picture of, uh, of an olive tree. And all around the central trunk, you see shoots that are growing out of the ground. In fact, those are not other trees. These, are, these shoots belong to the same trunk, the same tree. Uh, the olive tree has this remarkable ability of renewing itself. And as a result of that, it just goes on to live basically forever, you know, on and on and on by growing new shoots, and eventually those uh, new shoots will replace the old uh, trunk that you see right there in the middle. This is exactly what Jesus was to the house of Jesse. The crumbling house of Jesse that was fading away. The uh, kings that followed uh, King David, for the most part, fell away. They turned away from the Lord. And the prophets have prophesied that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, who is a descendant of the house of David, he will uh, restore the old crumbling house of Jesse. And over here, you can see the connection between that and how it is applied uh, in the New Testament. Um, the, the, the Gospels that you see over there, they basically reflect 
or focus on various different attributes, four attributes, of Jesus. Um, and those are Matthew, okay, Jesus as king. In fact, um, the kingdom of heaven is mentioned about 40 times, at least 40 times in the Gospel of Matthew. This is really the main focus, the main emphasis. There are other mentionings, of course, but this is the main emphasis of the book of Matthew. Uh, the Gospel of Mark presents Jesus and focuses on uh, his service and his suffering. Uh, the Gospel of Luke talks about Jesus as the Son of Man. And then finally, John, Jesus as the Son of God, the living Son of God. And I will just say this, that although the Gospel of Luke um, presents Jesus as the Son of Man, it also makes a very important point to show that he was no, not just an ordinary perfect man, because no man can be perfect. The reason why he was so perfect is that he was also the Son of God at the same time. Uh, but he grew up, you know, and he came here in the flesh. He was God in coming, you know, in the flesh. You can see the, um, uh, the word, uh, synoptic gospels, the, that's the reference to the three first gospels, uh, coinciding views. And so these are similar gospels. They present Jesus in a, in, a in a similar way. However, they have very different emphasis, each and every one of them on um, the attributes of Jesus. And this, of course, coincides with Old Testament prophecy. And again, we're talking about, we're kind of jumping back and forth, right? Old Testament, New Testament. Why? Because the Old Testament is the foundation. And this is something that we should never forget, right? Um, the Old Testament is the foundation. And especially for the Jews who lived in first century Galilee and Nazareth and Capernaum and other such places, uh, they didn't have a copy of the New Testament. You know, they relied completely on the Old Testament. And for them, they were looking for the attributes that were mentioned by Old Testament prophets. And next, uh, what we're going to do, I'm going to show you how uh, this coincides with Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, who the Messiah was supposed to be, that branch, that offshoot, and what were his different attributes. So in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, it reads, Behold, the, day is, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. By the way, branch in Hebrew, Netzer, the same word for Nazareth. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. So here we have the first characteristic of the Messiah. Okay, the son of David, the branch, the Netzer, he will reign as king. The next passage is from Zechariah. Zechariah 3, verse 8. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. So the Messiah, the branch, the offshoot, is supposed to serve. He will not be just king, he will be also a servant, as uh, we read about him in the Gospel of uh, Mark. Next, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. 
So here we have Jesus as the Son of Man. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, there is at least 24 times when uh, the Son of Man is mentioned uh, throughout that, that Gospel. And then finally, Isaiah. Isaiah 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And here we have the four basic attributes that were all fulfilled in the life of Christ, his first coming. Jesus as king, Jesus as the servant, the one who died for us, for our sins, Jesus the son of man who came in the flesh, and Jesus the Lord, the son of God. In this picture you see the synagogue of Nazareth. This is how the synagogue would have looked. And you remember that um, sometime during Jesus' ministry, Jesus returns to Nazareth. Uh, and on the Sabbath day, he um, basically steps up and the book of Isaiah is presented to him. And he reads from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. He reads the first verses of that chapter. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. To bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And he ends there. He gives the book back to the man there and continues. You know, the reason why he stopped there was that you see the next verse here. It says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of uh, vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance is yet to come. We know that this is something that coincides with Jesus' second coming. He will judge the wicked. However, in this first coming, he did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And um, the reason why I put that scripture here is uh, to show you the last verse over there that says to comfort all who mourn. So this is one of the central tasks, one of the central missions of Jesus to comfort, to reconcile between God and mankind. And this leads us to the next name, the next place, which is Capernaum. I'm pretty sure that you've read, I mean, the the name Capernaum is very familiar to all of you. Um, But unless you really understand the meaning of that name, it doesn't really mean much. It's just basically gibberish, Capernaum. However, in Hebrew, it derives from two words, kafar, and the second one is Nahum or Nahum. Kfar meaning the village of. Nahum derives from the Hebrew word comfort or reconciliation. I can't think of a better name for the headquarters of Jesus. In fact, two-thirds of the Gospels took place in and around Capernaum. Okay? Then the village of comfort, the village of reconciliation. And this is a beautiful picture uh, to show you how Capernaum would have looked uh, back then. Uh, right on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. So many miracles, so many teachings, so many things, wonderful things happened there. Two-thirds of the Gospels, imagine, took place uh, in that small little area in and around Capernaum. But one of the uh, memorable miracles is uh, recorded in Luke chapter 8. If you can all turn with me to that passage. (coughs) 
And let's read verse 40 and following. Remember, this happens in Capernaum, the village of comfort and reconciliation. Some may add healing. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is quite remarkable. Again, we're talking about context here. What is the setting, historical setting? First century, Galilee, right? It's a Jewish setting. Remember that all the people there in Capernaum, they were were Jewish. That lady had absolutely no business in that crowd for a simple reason. She was suffering from a certain medical condition which prevented her from approaching crowds. She was impure, just like lepers. And for that lady, even to appear in the crowd, let alone touch the fringe of Jesus' cloak, meant that not only was she very brave, but she also had an incredible amount of faith. The question I think that we ought to ask ourselves was what was the reason for her faith? What did she think of Jesus, and what did she actually do when she touched the hem of his garments? I believe that this may coincide with Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, which reads, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and he will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And what you probably didn't know was that the word in Hebrew for wing also means hem. The edge. And so that woman, most likely, had that scripture in mind. She probably recognized and believed that he was the one, right, who would be able to bring about, you know, solution for her problem. Notice that Jesus actually says it was your faith that saved you. So by reaching out and touching the hem of Jesus' garment, that was... Uh, a manifest of faith. I believe that you are the one of whom Malachi and other prophets spoke about. You're the one who can bring reconciliation. You're the one who can bring about healing and comfort. And this, of course, coincides also with Numbers uh, chapter 15. And you can read those verses. I underlined the tassels that were attached to the corners of the garments. Uh, a lot of times when we think about a hem of a garment... The corner of a garment, you just think of just ordinary, you know, piece of clothing. 
But you need to bear in mind that during that time, uh, every man, Jewish man, was expected to attach tassels to his hem or his, or his garment. And here you see a picture of that lady reaching out for the tzitzit, the tassel that was attached most likely to Jesus' garment and the rest of the disciples as well. In fact, Orthodox Jews will still uh, wear those tassels to this very day. If you've ever come across you know, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, you know, there are these tassels that stick out of their clothes. Uh, it's the same thing. It's actually a sign for them to remember and never forget the laws of Moses, the commandments of the Lord. But in her case, instead of the law bringing judgment and wrath, it actually brought about healing. Because Jesus was the only one who could actually bring about healing through that. So it's the, the son of comfort bringing comfort through Capernaum, the town that he's headquartered in, as they touch the tassel. I don't know about you, but in my mind, when I think of him, I think of uh, the him maybe on a man's pants or woman's skirt. And it just gives you additional imagery of what that would have been like at that time. So Nazareth is branch, and we see how Christ is a fulfillment in each of the Gospels of that. And he was the branch. We also see now that he is the comforter who came to the city of comfort, headquartered in the city of comfort, and somebody needs comfort out there. And uh, she'll be okay in a second, wherever she is. And uh, what we recognize is the, the great uh, joy of who the Savior is. It leads us to the next station, next point, next place. And, of course, we... Uh Speaking of context, um, one very, very powerful station in Jesus' life just before he died for us on the cross was the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, this happens uh, the, the night before his crucifixion. Um, Jesus just returns from the upper room after the Last Supper with the disciples. Uh, the disciples are falling asleep. They're you know, tired you know, from sorrow. And Jesus is there in the garden, alone, away from his disciples. And you see a, a picture there that was taken uh, at the Garden of Gethsemane, showing you one of the oldest trees there in that garden. Uh, some of those trees are said to be over 2,000 years old. So this tree may have stood there even at the time of Jesus. We don't know. But what we also know is the meaning in Hebrew of the name Gethsemane. Gethsemane derives from two Hebrew words, gaf, meaning press, and semene, or shmanim, meaning oil. So the garden of the olive press, the garden of the oil press. This was no ordinary garden. It was actually an industrial garden, and it was there that they prepared the special uh, olive oil for the temple. And just think of the symbolism Okay, we have Jesus there in the middle of the night. He's subjected to enormous pressure, right? He knows there's no other way. He has to go about, you know. He's determined to do that. But at the same time, he's really squeezed, basically being crushed, just as he would crush the olives. And just to illustrate that point as to how enormous pressure was applied, you know, in, in crushing those olives, I just put a few slides here showing the, the entire process of uh, preparing olive oil. And so in the first slide here, you see uh, a young boy basically uh, collecting the olives. Usually the time for the harvest in Israel is late uh, fall, uh, late October, early November. 
And uh, what they would do, they would simply pick up those uh, olives. Sometimes they would use those sticks in order to shake the, the tree uh, and then cause the olives to fall on the ground. Thereafter, and again, this device that you see over there um, is just like at the time of Jesus. Nowadays they use uh, modern machinery. But back in the day, they would use these sort of uh, olive presses to crush, to do the initial crushing of the olives. And so you would place all the olives in there, and you see a, a donkey, and then the donkey would be forced to drag this heavy stone around, and he would just go around and around and around about this axis here, and as he, he does, uh, it crushes the olives. This is the first crushing. In fact, the olive oil that uh, emerges on the surface is considered the purest uh, of oils. And that was usually, at the time of Jesus, the oil that was sent directly to the temple or as anointing oil. But that was not all. That was just the first stage in that process. There was still a lot of oil there and that needed to be squeezed out. And over here you see the mash of olives, and this boy is basically placing that mash inside of a basket called akal in Arabic. And then those sacks would be sent to be crushed again and squeezed by this device. And so you see that log here, and there were weights basically pushing and squeezing those baskets. And so you see those baskets stacked one on top of the other. They have holes in them. And as that pressure is being applied uh, on those sacks, the oil is, is squeezed out. The last slide here really illustrates that very well. Let I me mean, just imagine what an enormous pressure you know, that is being applied to the olives. Every single drop just being squeezed out. And again, when you read through the passage there, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that at a certain point, um, his sweat became just like drops of blood. You know, he was basically sweating. Just try to imagine this, but just only his blood as an expression of his sorrow, as his grief, as his pressure. Jesus loved us that much to be willing to be crushed for us, for each and every one of us that is sitting in this room, Jews and Gentiles. And I can't help thinking of the applications of olive oil at the time of Jesus. Again, speaking of symbolism, this is a picture of an oil lamp. They would pour oil into that lamp. That was basically the source of light in ancient times. Nowadays, when we think of olive oil, we think of food, we think of salad dressing. But the main function of olive oil in those days was to provide light. By dying on the cross, Jesus provided light. There's no other way for the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in people's hearts without the death of Jesus on the cross. And um, I'm really grateful every day for that wonderful gift and his willingness and his obedience to do that. He didn't have to do that. He did that because he loved each and every one of us. Gethsemane, the place of crushing. Listen to these words from Isaiah 53 that looked ahead to it. Surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. He esteemed, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
the place of crushing, the place where the olives would be rolled over, is a place where Christ came to give his life for us. And Eris and I have talked, and if there's anything he would want you to know is that as he's presented this, it's that you too can know the Messiah personally, that you too can place your faith in him, that uh, some of you may have come out of curiosity as we advertise that uh, we'd have a messianic believer in Christ who's Jewish and you've heard what's happened in his family and we pray the same thing may happen in yours that you would place your faith in Yeshua, in Jesus, the true Messiah that you've seen how he is the branch, he's the fulfillment of those prophecies he's the one who can bring you comfort in the pain that you're in he did it then and he does it now and then ultimately he was crushed for your well-being and because of that, because of his sacrifice you can have forgiveness of your sin if you place your faith in him. And many of you have done that. And as you watch the unfolding of the scriptures, as he's put it in the Hebrew context, you can have full confidence in the word that was given to us that looked ahead to the Messiah because it was fulfilled through the Messiah. And then you can see the work that he has done so that you can take that good news and you can share it with others. Eris, thank you for being with us and adding those insights from God's word. Would you thank him? Ready to saddle up and go to Israel for a couple of weeks? I think we all would do that if we could, wouldn't we? Uh, I've asked Eris to close our time. There's a great blessing, the ironic blessing in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you, keep you, and let his face shine upon you. Would you stand as he prays over us in his native tongue? Yevarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha. יאר אדוני פנав אלך ויחונך יסא אדוני אדוני פנав אלך ויאסנך שלום עכשיו ולומא לומים בשם ישוע משיח אמן.